Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Dark Phoenix. You think you can fix me? Jean, you are not broken. This is the end. Beautiful friend. The mind is a fragile thing. It takes only the slightest tap to tip it in the wrong direction. This is the end. Charles. What did you do? I had to keep her stable. I protected her. From the truth? There's another word for that. I came looking for answers. You feel like you don't belong here. You don't. They can't begin to comprehend what you are. She's changing. And what? You didn't come here looking for answers. You came here looking for permission. Jean. She's all rage. Pain. And it's all coming out at once. Jean lost control, but she's still our friend. This is your fault, Charles. The world is on the brink. I'm sorry. I didn't stop it sooner. You're always sorry, Charles. And there's always a speech. And nobody cares. There's still hope. Don't do this. They're right to fear me. I've seen evil. I'm looking at it now. This is the end, beautiful friend. So sang the teaser trailer for this, the 12th of 13 movies based on Marvel's X-Men series that was already ended beautifully and definitively two years ago with James Mangold's modern masterpiece Logan in 2017. Unlike Avengers Endgame, the 22nd in the 11th year of an ongoing line of Marvel movies which celebrated the closing of a generation and a handover to the next in the most operatic yet personal of ways, Dark Phoenix is a remake of the third film in this series which at the time in 2006 was intended to close out the trilogy of X-Men films with a mind to spinning off individual character origin movies like Wolverine, Magneto and Deadpool. This 13-year Last Stand do-over was stripped of its mutant cure subplot and originally intended to be a two-parter in the then very much continuing series. But since Disney brought the rights to all of Fox's assets, including the X-Men that Marvel sold to them in the 90s when they were desperate and about to go out of business, that changed the game considerably. This film had a series of reshoots, then a second series of reshoots, presumably overseen this time by Disney as a means of damage control. Since they just paid for all of Fox's toys, they didn't want these bozos breaking them in the eyes of the public. Thus, if you know where to look, you can see the marks where certain characters have been changed, names switched out, scenes removed, and revelations excised to make this all it had to be, now that this really is the end. A full stop. Alternately... There was no interference by Disney, and this is exactly the film that Simon Kinberg wanted to make. I don't know which is worse. I have always hated the idea of executives going in and changing art as it's being created, 
But at the same time, if I were Disney, I wouldn't want these guys fumbling around and fucking up the X-Men any more than they have done for the past 19 years. But let's continue. It's not a well-made film, but considering how disastrously stupid X-Men Apocalypse was, with every character sounding like a blithering idiot with every word they said, I was expecting a lot worse. Instead, longtime X-Men producer Simon Kinberg, who wrote the aforementioned Last Stand, got to write it again, using what he had learned in the time since then, writing Days of Future Past and Apocalypse. And with disgraced Predator and bland director Brian Singer relieved of duty, Kinberg helmed his directorial debut. And, as I say, I was expecting it to be potentially worse than Apocalypse, especially considering the giant mess of reforming that had to have gone on behind the scenes. But honestly, it didn't bug me nearly as much, and it's not as bad as it could have been. It's still a bad film, of course, garnering the lowest metascore on Rotten Tomatoes of the whole series. Though the critics were scathing of Detective Pikachu and Godzilla King of the Monsters as well, they seem to have a hair up their ass right now. So you can take that 20-odd percent with a pinch of salt. Those rankings, by the way, are Logan, 93. Days of Future Past, 90. First Class, 86. X2, 85. Deadpool, 84. Deadpool, 283. X-Men, 81, The Wolverine, that's Wolverine 2, 71, The Last Stand, that's X-Men 3, 57, Apocalypse, 47, Origins Wolverine, 37, and Dark Phoenix, currently at 23%. Now, the only ones I would differ with there in terms of ranking is that Days of Future Past was better received than First Class somehow. And X1 and X2 are now critically applauded disproportionately high relative to the landscape of comic movies that followed them. And I would place Dark Phoenix above The Last Stand. Just. And both above the nadir of the series, Apocalypse, which is far worse, considering that it came out just weeks after Deadpool and Captain America Civil War. The first X-Men trilogy was just comic book movies finding their feet. They were fucking flying by the time 2016 came around there is no excuse to be quite this much of a pile of dog shit smeared all over the wall incidentally if you've not heard it yet go back and listen to our x-men apocalypse it's kind of it's almost a drunken definitely delirious review where i've been watching a lot of movies with mikey and i kept interrupting during the edit and it's it's kind of it's unhinged and it's great fun to listen to didn't have a good day yesterday did no have a good day that happened, then I had to watch X-Men Apocalypse. Then I had to talk about X-Men Apocalypse, which is a bit better. So, let's enjoy that. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to be peppering the episode tonight with music from 1983, which Brian Singer and company neglected to do. How the hell do you do a fucking period movie set in the 80s and not have a kick-ass fucking soundtrack? Let's start with Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Two Tribes. It's obvious, it just writes itself! In principle, I hate Apocalypse because after the new beginning of Days of Future Past, when they were being critically praised and flopped to by audiences despite Singer's lacklustre direction and the already antiquated manner that they handled superhero ensemble pieces in the same year as Winter Soldier and Guardians of the Galaxy, I might add, after they had changed time to give themselves a clean slate that still felt in continuity with the original series, in a way that only Star Trek had successfully managed, their next move was to squander the whole world in a goofball pantomime with alarming tone problems. 
If you remember Stan Lee in a fun cameo, remember him? Looking up at the horrifying nuclear missile spectre of the Cold War. Hmm? Remember that? He wasn't in Dark Phoenix, was he? No. That was it. That's all we got. They did say at the end, you know, dedicated to Stan Lee, in loving memory of Stan Lee. Yeah. But yeah, remember sexy Auschwitz? Yes, I do. Remember. Yes. That was insulting to pretty much everyone on the planet. They claimed they had a new timeline and then they did nothing with it. Only Deadpool and Logan succeeded, and they did so by abandoning all continuity or connectivity with any other films. This was a dismal fail, and it needs to be held up as an example of what a lack of planning and oversight results in, relative to Kevin Feige's carefully mapped out, yet still partially improvised, MCU. It's kind of like John Coltrane and uh, Miles Davis going out and having like a set list of like, these are the songs we're going to do and tunes we're going to riff on, but we might just go off and just just, just do some fun stuff if, if we're feeling like it. Once again, since they didn't add a soundtrack, I'm going to be adding my own. This is Heart Shaped Box by Nirvana from who haven't seen this film, here's the synopsis. In 1975, Jean Grey accidentally killed her parents in a car crash age eight. Charles Xavier took her in and told her whatever she breaks he can fix, which is problematic to begin with, why not we can fix it together, encouraging her to take some but not all responsibility, which seems fair. Now in 1992, she and the X-Men go into space without spacesuits in their Blackbird spy plane to rescue a rocket full of professional astronauts in trouble. Charles insists over the radio that they leave nobody behind, which results in Jean being consumed by a fiery explosion and absorbing a cosmic force that just happened to be there hanging around in Earth's orbit. The X-Men recover her still-living body and Hank performs some tests to find she's going off the charts in terms of power signature. Jean reads Charles's mind and discovers that while her mother died, her father survived the car crash and Charles hid that from her. Angrily, Jean goes to meet her father, only to find he's been terrified of her since she was eight. The X-Men turn up to bring Jean home and badger her until she lashes out, knocking Quicksilver out of the movie and Mystique out of the franchise. Apparently, Raven and Jean developed a friendship off-camera over the nine years because it seems like up until now they were best buds. Jean goes on the run and winds up at Magneto's private island where she asks him about how he manages to not kill people every day. He attacks and tries to kill her for killing Raven and some interfering helicopters get knocked about a bit. An eyebrowless, white-haired woman appears and tells Jean she knows all about her powers. We know this to be a shape-shifting alien that definitely isn't 
reason to scroll. Magneto goes to kill Jean again in a hotel. The X-Men try to stop him, and in the end, Jean floors Eric with her powers, then humiliates Charles. Then a bunch of human soldiers turn up and capture everyone, put them on a train to somewhere, probably the mutant prison in Deadpool 2. The shape-shifting aliens attack the train, the X-Men are freed, and there's a big fight where they all protect Jean. The white-haired woman busts through to the front carriage, and she and Jean fight in an ugly, disused quarry at night. Jean now wants to protect her friends from this woman who is trying to steal the alien force and will probably destroy the Earth with it. She sacrifices herself, saving everyone. Hank, who was furious at Charles for manipulating Jean and giving them all orders which got Jean and Raven killed, gets to be headmaster of the new Jean Grey school for gifted youngsters while Charles retires and goes and sits outside a French cafe the end. Oh, and Cyclops and Storm and Nightcrawler were all there too, but they didn't do anything except fight and pout. The next section is called 1992. Before we proceed, I have a few things to say about the 1992 period setting. Back in 2011, when Matthew Vaughan made First Class, there was a literal need to go back as far as the 1960s to capture a young Charles and Eric meeting for the first time at arguably the height of the Cold War, while tensions were rife and nuclear weapons were a constant looming threat. It's no accident that this was also the era when the original Lee and Kirby comic launched and gave the world the X-Men. I was just going to say they were at the time called the Children of the Atom. Yeah, the children of directly the directly linked to the advancement of nuclear power. It made sense, and Vaughan endeavoured to soak us in the vibrant atmosphere of the sixties through clothing styles, room dressing, hair, music, and an aesthetic somewhere between a glossy version of Connery's Bond and a serious version of Austin Powers. For Days of Future Past, it made some sense that some time would have passed. The story came from a short comic run in 1981, but this was crucially the Chris Claremont era of the giant-sized new X-Men, when the pasty white American kids of the 60s were supposed to be moved to the background as newcomers from Africa, the Soviet Union, Germany and Canada appeared. But already they had problems, namely that Fox had scattered the X-Men across time with their ill-considered first outing, locking Cyclops, Jean and Storm in adulthood in the year 2000. In the year 2000! Beast in his twilight years immediately afterwards, and Iceman just starting. And Angel not even really joining the X-Men. Mm, yeah. Colossus was a non-speaking background character, Nightcrawler showcased already. Storm yet to have any kind of story about her, an appalling fact that remains to this day. What this amounts to is that they didn't have a clear idea of who was where and when, but it was still too early in the 70s for the X-Men who were going to be adults later. This explains why they jumped to 1983 with Apocalypse to reach that point as soon as possible, reintroducing the initial X-Men cinematic lineup minus Logan in fresh young forms. That they then proceeded to do nothing with in that cretinous mess of a movie, X-Men Apocalypse. But at least they had the cast lined up to proceed with early X-Men adventures. Problem was that in jumping nine years from 1983 to 1992, a measure of character progression and experience is to be expected. That is an astonishing amount of time for a young person. By all rights, all the 83 X-Men should be teachers by now or teaching assistants. If not... What are they doing hanging around Xavier's Academy, and who's teaching the four dozen wide-eyed mutant moppets gathered in Xavier's lobby? Charles? All day long? 
You know how boring that is? Yes, come in with me for three hours of me talking to you about mutants and physics. Then go play. Then come back for three more hours of me talking to you. My throat never gets tired. <laughs> or Matt, you know, he just doesn't do it with his mind. Just speak to the class with his mind. But then his mind would get tired. Jesus Christ. Nine years is roughly the length of time between Iron Man coming out in the MCU and frigging Infinity War. It would appear nothing has changed in a boring world, aside from the fact that people are all accepting of mutants now, despite the atrocity in Cairo and the worldwide city-wrecking mayhem committed by Eric in the last film. Global shenanigans which, by the way, got him punished by being gifted a private island. Some X-Men should by all rights have moved on. Some should have developed romantic relationships with each other and with new mutants and with regular humans. But no, no Trish Tilby for us. It seems like these sexless 20-somethings from this creepy, old, bald, Heaven's Gate-looking motherfuckers compound ended the last movie's Danger Room sequence, took a shower, and then went into suspended animation for nine goddamn years. To put this in perspective, Quicksilver, a.k.a. Pietro, born in 1956, is now in the X-Men timeline 36 years old. And he looks it, but he acts like he's 20. Eric Lenscher, Magneto, born in 1932, is 60 years old and could so easily now be sporting his signature white hair. Fassbender looks about my age. Because he is. The easiest to explain because she had... To be played by a younger model in the year 2000 is the cellular rejuvenating Raven, who must now be skirting the same age as Charles and Eric. She's played by Jennifer Lawrence, who is age 28, but she holds herself like she's 45, so that at least makes some sort of on-screen sense. Yeah. Hank McCoy, however, is now at the very least 50 years old, and he looks 28. The same age as Nicholas Holt. Not one grey hair, not one wrinkle. He's got Benjamin Button Syndrome. Jean was born in 1968, making her 24 here and played by 23-year-old Sophie Turner. That's fine. But Scott Summers is also 24, played by Ty Sheridan, who is 22, but looks about 13. Honestly, look me in the eye and tell me you wouldn't ground Ty Sheridan in a heartbeat. I can tell you several things. Ah, to bed. To your room, Scott. Off you go. I didn't even do anything. I just don't want to look at you. Sorry, continue. I was going to say I could tell you several things I would do with Ty Sheridan. They all involve putting him in a room far away from me. I'm sick to death of you, Scott. He's a waste of fluids, honestly. Okay. There's also no allusions within the film to the fact that it's 1992. No posters, no particularly 90s clothes or foodstuffs, commercials, logos, nothing. They even tried that somewhat by going to the mall and having some eurythmics in, in Apocalypse. There's not even that. And on the soundtrack, no Nirvana, no Pearl Jam, no Boys to Men, no Guns N' Roses, no Bon Jovi, no Mariah Carey, no Sonic Youth, TLC, Ice Cube, Dr. Dre, and definitely no Color Me Bad. On second thoughts, that might be a good thing. We don't want the kids finding out about Color Me Bad. Shit, the only music these kids listen to is Dazzler, and she sounds like she's from 2019. I didn't see beige suits, shell suits, Bermuda shorts, Velcro, global hypercolor, or hot pink fanny packs anywhere. There wasn't any flavor that would spark our sense memory. So if they're not going to try, they just wanted to copy-paste the cast of blue and white Benetton gonks. And it's only three years later, in our time, why isn't the film just set in 1986?
Why? It's worth noting, folks, that 1992 was the year a lot of people of our age got into X-Men. They had hit the mainstream even in the United Kingdom, which was very much cut off from American comic books. But we were, by this year, getting reprints of X-Men comics on our news racks because of a little show you might have heard of called X-Men. I was actually dreading hearing that theme replicated somehow orchestrally, maybe even by Hans Zimmer. Because if they used it here, it won't be so fresh, surprising and wonderful when Marvel come out with some kind of theme related to this several years from now. This was a celebration of the Claremont era with a colourful character renditions patterned after Jim Lee's massively popular art style. Jubilee, Wolverine, Gambit, Cyclops, Gene, Rogue and Storm were so many people's first experience of the mythology. This year is so significant and doubtless at some point the movie was set then for some kind of reason. But whatever it is was bled away, leaving us with this weird, bloodless, funereal, miserable sink into depression while the MCU threw the most bittersweet, epic party you could ever imagine and invited everyone. Fox made something that feels like walking into a record store going into administration. The gaunt faces of the staff as you walk the aisles just making you want to leave as soon as possible. Did any of this affect your viewing of it? Because I saw this without you earlier in the day, and then yeah. you said, no, I'm going to go see it myself, definitely, and then you saw it after work, so we saw it separately, and we've barely talked about it. I've got a few things off you, but this is going to be straight from the uh, the furnace, as, as it Indeed, were. Indeed, yeah. Well, it's not... I wouldn't really call it much of a furnace, and that surprised me more than anything. I was expecting to hate this. I was expecting to come out of there with fangs dripping venom. <laughs> because of how horrendous they'd butchered one of my favourite X-Men stories. So this is the Dark Phoenix story, which you may remember me mentioning when we've talked about X3 in the past, is pretty much one of my favourite storylines from one of my favourite comics of my teenage years. So it means... A lot. As a result, I was expecting that they're going to mess it up again. I'm going to hate it. I'm going to be spitting feathers. And I really couldn't muster up the energy to loathe it that much, which is possibly even more heavily critical in a way. 
the I get exactly what you mean about the complete lack of era specific stuff. And although it doesn't feel like that's an issue, really, because it doesn't feel like there was anything that that necessitated this storyline being set in 1992, mm. it does feel like, well, then why did you bother? As you said, it's it's nailing it to an era that the audience you're playing on the heartstrings of at this point is going to remember very, very vividly. Clearly, Simon Kinbo didn't want to make it the least bit funny or fun. He was trying to do... This is his Logan. Uh, yes, this is true, but I, I mentioned this to you when I got back from the cinema last night. My audience thought this was hilarious. Oh, they were tittering away. They were giggling. It was a small screen as it was. That it wasn't everybody, but there were probably at least half a dozen people scattered at various points around the theatre. So it did actually feel like it was a good chunk of the audience that were responding to it this way. And I think the first one that got the biggest gut laugh was probably when, I can't remember his friggin' name, Ty Sheridan says to Magneto... If you hurt her, I'll fucking kill you. Oh, everybody <laughs> thought this was hysterical. I'm amazed and that Magneto didn't just pat Scott pat on, the on the head at that point. Oh, yeah. you're trying well, to be a big boy. Sweet. <laughs> no, no, he's not, but yeah. What's your language, um, young man? <laughs> and then, I, will, I will ground you like this. And then through the whole of the action sequence on the train, everybody was just giggling and snickering. And whenever anybody got horrendously decapitated or ripped to shreds. To shreds, you say. Just laughing outright. What she's describing sounds a lot more bloody than it actually was. It's it's just a bunch of T-1000 aliens who oh, turn yeah, absolutely. up. absolutely. But they, they... I don't quite know how to describe got it. Got to assume most people listening gets, haven't seen it. Whenever anybody gets hit with Magneto throwing a shard of metal through the air or something, there, there's a very definite thunk and you see it go through their mm. neck, shoulder, whatever. And normally this kind of behaviour from an audience would really, really piss me off. And... I was trying to work out why it wasn't really, really pissing me off. Even to the point where the the two people sitting next to me were at various points having just ordinary noise level conversations. And it still wasn't bugging me as much as it normally would. And then I thought, (laughs) I can't blame them. I can't blame my audience for being disengaged and, and emotionally unresponsive to this because the film doesn't seem to want to engage them and uh, get them on an emotional level. And I realised, I can't remember the exact moment, but I realised that the way they were laughing was how we used to laugh at 80s and early 90s action movies, like a Jean-Claude Van Damme, where he drops a grenade down the pants of the bad guy. That's that's horrible. Somebody being torn to pieces by a grenade down their trousers is a horrible concept. But in the context of Hard Target... Exactly. In the context of that film, you are supposed to be sort of pumped up and amused by it. And that is how the audience were responding. And I... Although I wasn't feeling the same way about it, I really couldn't blame them for having that response. And at least it was a response, because quite frankly, the alternative was that everybody just sat there in stony silence until the end. That's kind of what they wanted. Because like that, it's it never requires anything from you, any kind of gasp, any kind of oh my god, or, or like serious engagement. Yeah. It doesn't really want to get your heart going. No, no, and the well, no, actually, the next thing I was going to say, I will get to okay. shortly. But uh, by the way, like, don't forgive them for uh, uh, laughing at this this film just because it was a, a non-engaging film. They do it with everything. Oh, I know. I don't ever want to 
Next one uh, that you've got on your list of uh, only five questions that you wanted yes, me to ask you. But, uh, uh, and even that first one you made up, I only came up with four. Okay, so <laughs> the Phoenix Concept and Effect. Okay. What, 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 what? Yeah, the Phoenix Concept and Effect. Now this actually, I've, I've had to divide my notes for this up into things I liked, things I didn't like. The good, okay. the bad. The good, the bad. Was there an ugly? Uh, yes. Was there good, the bad and the nerdy? <laughs> Uh, but the the Phoenix... there was so little in the way of nerdy, by the way. Fucking hell! Really? Like was. I see Dazzler. That's, That's about it. Yeah, and and oh my god, I got unreasonably excited about Dazzler just because this was a character that well, I recognised and they were actually all using. gotten unreasonably excited about Dazzler. <laughs> That's very Scotty, go to your room. <laughs> so the Phoenix concept and effects now. One of my issues with the way the Phoenix was evoked in The Last Stand was that they almost completely did away with the the idea that it is a space entity which enters Jean and takes possession of her body. It's And it the, hasn't really experienced. It needs no, to learn about us. Exactly. Yeah. And the way it comes across in the in The Last Stand is is just that it's Jean. It's just a part of Jean that's It's an evil nuts. side of Jean that's crazy. Yeah. Whereas in the original Claremont book, it's mm. it's this innocent I don't quite know what's happening. For, yeah. like, to begin it's, with it's Jean. It's an energy. Yeah. To begin with it's mostly Jean and then it turns out that it's actually kind of Phoenix yeah. who's just kind of like learning about us and she's like, You humans are strange so it's it's not like you know most of both films are gene staring yes that is the case and and gene going leave me alone and other people going we're not going to leave you alone we're not just pouring at her and just closing in and going gene you've got to keep calm keep calm for god's sake gene keep calm do you want me to burn this shit down please stop (laughs) okay so what the phoenix storyline what the phoenix to me, okay, and so. everybody has their own take, and your mileage may vary, and if this is not what you got from the original storyline, then I completely understand, and that's fine. You're wrong, but I completely understand, and that's fine. <laughs> but it's it's about a woman who has gone through her life with a power that she doesn't really understand and can't control properly and causes her a lot of anguish at times. Because her psychic ability she has very limited control over of and she is infiltrated by people's thoughts all the time. She finds it hard to keep them out. She compensates for this by being really, really good and very locked up and tense. And this is why she and Scott make this lovely little couple because she's all about everyone else and, you know, putting herself out for other people. And she's a really nice girl. And when the when she gets the Phoenix Force in her, which is drawn to her because of the potential that she contains, she can't hold the energy that this power brings. And it's about, for me, the idea that the the trauma that you might be going through, the, the stresses that you're going through in the process of going through teenagehood and early adulthood are to do with energies within yourself that cannot be just put in a box and put a lid on, that they have to be in some way channeled. And because she can't do that, eventually the Phoenix Force comes out in very, very negative ways. 
and it's obviously it's all comic booky, so it's very magnified and huge, and universes get destroyed and things, and it's it's all on a pretty huge scale. And I can completely understand why they didn't want to go down that route, but they actually brought in for this the the cosmic element of it, the idea that the Phoenix Force is a, a source of life, that it's something that's that's really positive if it's handled in the right way, that it's drawn to Jean for a reason because of the strength that she has and the abilities that she has, and that it's something that comes to her and then the combination of the Phoenix Force and her natural abilities blend together to create this huge potential uh, for good, which then eventually becomes this huge potential for destruction. So all of that concept, I liked and I appreciated that they had at least brought it in in some small way. They really could have done way more with it than they did and that's kind of going to be the bookmark for this whole film but that it was there was good for me. The effect, the actual fire effect for the phoenix in all circumstances, even right down, and you're probably going to yell at me for this, but the, I never the, the yell. fiery lines on, on Jean's face, I really, really liked them. All of the effects. Why the would I yell was, at you for that? Well, no, okay. It looked a lot better than the first time around with Thamka yes, Jensen with absolutely. her black eyes, like yes, a doll's eyes. Completely. And I really. The, Which was mostly you, disintegrating all the time, yeah, whereas absolutely. this was, was definitely like from fire. Flakes of skin falling off her and all the rest of it. So she's got alopecia. So, well, exactly. And Jean. Gray, whose Phoenix energy is released through the power of stairs. And the, the multicolored Phoenix fire going through space, all of that, I thought that was really beautiful. And the way they'd done Why that. Why would I yell was... at you for finding beauty? <laughs> I don't yell at Sharon. No. <laughs> doesn't that's that's I yell at Scott go to your room (laughs) go to your room Scott so yeah so that the the phoenix as a thing I liked that was a positive for me the next one you got here is performances yes and you've listed specific characters because obviously there's a lot of characters in this film there are few of them get developed no 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 sorry there are a lot lot of of people sorry there There aren't a lot of characters there are a lot of bodies there are a lot of bodies yes um (laughs) the Oh, my God. A lot of paychecks. Uh, for, right. I'll talk about Simon Kinberg in a minute. But for Simon Kinberg to say that he wanted this to be a much more emotional story... Mm-hmm. Okay, Simon, <laughs> how do you think emotions get communicated? Polygons? Well, you explain that the, this person no, 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 is no, so right, powerful. Right. Forget about the script. But no, the power of Forget the, about the but, script. But, but she's so powerful and it's she's so how, angry. Right, okay, but, okay. Yeah. But how do we know that, Simon? Because she see her angry all the time. No, no, no. But how do we know she's angry, Because Simon? other people say she's angry. But no, 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 Simon. You're getting it all wrong. But, Cart before horse, but, darling. But, Cart before horse. But... but <laughs> But it says you have no idea what she's capable of. I'm like, I don't know, turning people into oh, dust? Okay, so... Yep, that's pretty much what it was. So this this is a film in which things happen. Debatable. Th- this is a film in which stuff is done. Mm, still a grey area. <laughs> there, there, there is a lot of grey area in mm, stuff is done. Okay. So... Oh, Aladdin, that's a fun film. In order for us to care... About the things which are happening. Yeah. Okay. We have Care, to be able asterisk. to engage with okay. the people to whom it is happening. True. 
That is true. If your people to whom things are happening yep. are giving you nothing to suggest that they are anything other than a suit on a hanger that you put in front of the camera so you would know where to point it. What if they look worried and sad and miserable? Hmm. Right. There's a like not so much sad, but like forlorn. There's a range and in blasted this film. and blown out. I'm going to start with James McAvoy. James McAvoy, for me, if we discount Logan, which is by far and away like the runaway winner of anything X-Men related. I won the X-Men and it was <laughs> and advanced. It was advanced. <laughs> if we discount Logan, James McAvoy is the element of the all of these films that I have loved the most. I he, think his performance yeah. in First Class was superb absolutely superb he's he's the reason why days of future past depending on what mood i'm in is actually slightly more preferred by me than first class because oh. his performance in days of future past shines yeah. it absolutely shines it especially helps that he's offset for that one brief moment against patrick stewart that's a wonderful piece yes. of cinema yes that does help as well and um, i think that's probably what swept a lot of people up and they thought that the the whole of Days of Future Past was better than these parts. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, if anything was going to save this, it was going to be James McAvoy. Mm-hmm. And to his credit... Side note, by the way, as terrible as Apocalypse is, mm. he's still he's bringing it. He's the best thing in it. He is still bringing it, and he is the best thing in it. And so I was that was what I was expecting for this, that the film would be shit, but that James McAvoy would still be great. Now... Salute to McAvoy. Technically... He is in this. He is in this. (laughs) And his performance is still as good as it's always been. Wow. No, no, no. No, the performance is as good as it's always been. The problem is he is given precisely dick to work with in this movie. not entirely true. Precisely dick. There is nothing. Wait, wait. Go on then. In X-Men 3, Charles Xavier... Patrick Stewart reveals that he covered up a lot of Jean's uh, memories and uh, uh, aggressive impulses. Are you yes. flipping me the finger or actually scratching your I'm eye? Actually... <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I'm so sorry. That's exactly what Millie Bobby Brown does in Godzilla, yeah. isn't and it? And it's exactly what uh, Will Smith does in Men in Black. I'm I'll just so... do it to you as well. There you go. <laughs> flipping you the rod while scratching the side of my oh! I, I genuinely was scratching my eye at that sure. point. <laughs> Patrick not Stewart. Intentional. Patrick Stewart money. <laughs> says I I did all this to Gene. This is this is all my fault. Mm. And he gets disintegrated for that. Yes. And that's about it. That's the end of it. Yes. Pretty much. They don't really they, it doesn't really challenge Xavier and he kind of doesn't get to dwell on the, the yeah. fact that he did all this to Jean. Yeah. It doesn't suggest that maybe Charles ain't that fantastic. And we get to leave X-Men 3 really missing Charles like he's Spock mm. in uh, Wrath of Khan. Yeah. Whereas in reality, in, in this version, they at least get, he gets to say, I may have done this. I may have committed I some bad. <laughs> light neuralizing. <laughs> and... Um, and he gets called a motherfucker for it, which is appropriate. Mm. And he lives with the guilt. And at the end of the film, he's still living with the guilt. Yeah. So yeah. 
he does actually have more than nothing to yeah, work with. He does a lot right, more than he does actually, in Apocalypse. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I'd, I'd kind of forgotten about those bits, but which I shouldn't have done because mm. they tie in with one of the other things I wanted to mention. No, but that's but, like, I appreciated that because yeah. I had been, I, if you go back to that 2014 podcast, mm. I said, this is bullshit. Xavier is a fucking creep mm. and they, nev- they never mention it yeah. because in that script, it's so boneheaded mm. that it's not going to challenge the thing that we care about the most. Yeah. I'm going to play you a bit here from our X-Men The Last Stand podcast. We recorded this back in 2014 before we'd even seen Days of Future Past. It's very telling. It's exactly on this subject, and it's somewhat commendable the way Dark Phoenix moves forwards, but you can also see the seeds of ways that it definitely doesn't. Jean is introduced as a quite naughty girl. You know the way the the way she converses with Charles at the beginning. Yeah. Oh no, you're not like me. Look at what I can do, and then she moves all. Well, she's cars. like Voldemort. She's like Tom Riddle. She's she I is. Make them hurt. But why was Tom that way? Tom was that way because he'd been abandoned, because he'd been institutionalised, because he'd been um, surrounded by children who didn't understand him and were cruel to him. Now, some of those elements may have been present in Jean's upbringing. But we see no evidence of this. She lives with her mother and father, so we know she's had at least some input of a, a, a caring or at least protected childhood upbringing. It's a major that's, that's been relatively the comic. Her long parents long. don't at all fit the type uh, that would actually foster a child like that. Absolutely, and they don't—they don't seem to know anything about her powers, so it's unlikely that they have been cruel to her on that basis. And it's redundant for us to say because they can do whatever they want with the characters, but not, none of that is in the comic. She has yeah. a good, loving upbringing, and that is what makes her so forthright as a character. Indeed, indeed. But then Charles comes in, locks off the powers, and, and says, apparently. Be a good girl. Well, indeed. Oh, my God! Her personality gets shut away with the powers, right? Jean then goes on to have what appears to be quite a productive, relatively uh, normal in inverted commas, but certainly a, a life in which she is loved and very specifically in which she loves. Why would she grow and develop into somebody who has this secondary part of her personality, which is furious and rage-filled and angry? And also, given that Charles seems to have been monitoring here for all these years and was well aware that this was happening, why did he allow it to continue? Okay. Sorry. (laughs) Only Wolverine can hear you right now. (laughs) Sorry. But that was was such a huge... If, If he had tweaked a few things so that her powers would not come to the fore and then had nothing more to do with her until all of a sudden Phoenix burst onto the scene, that I could probably just about go with. It would be remarkably irresponsible and unethical of him to do so, but I could just about accept that. But Charles is not an inept therapist. Certainly not from what we've seen in uh, X-Men First Class. I can't imagine... James McAvoy's Charles doing what is being suggested here. Oh, and the fact that he 
it, I would say admits, but it's not even an admission. He's not saying to Logan, this is what I did, and I'm now starting to realise it was a really bad idea. He's just saying, this is what I did, this is what I had to do, yeah. and everything will be fine as long as nobody lets the Phoenix Force out of her head. This yeah, because that's going to work. This was Patrick Stewart's time to really act. He should have lost it at this point and expressed regret and the fact that this was a deep, dark secret and he realised that he shouldn't have been doing it uh, after a, a while but that there was no way out and he had no one to talk to about it and no one that he could trust with it and there was this awesome power living in the same house as him and he is afraid of Gene but that would take guts and understanding of the situation two things not present in this movie not in the slightest blaming Patrick Stewart for this by the way he cannot work with what he is not given I think what what kind of overwhelmed me a little bit about that side of things was that it is mostly, at least initially, uh, the the addressing of that is handled by Jennifer Lawrence, hmm. who couldn't look like she doesn't want to be there more if she tried. Fuck me. Apparently, she came back, uh, like, as long as uh, Kinberg could direct, she was like, if you're directing Sonny Jim, I will Seriously? be in this, I'll be in the blue makeup. Here's the impression that I got from Jennifer Lawrence's performance. Right, you fucking kill me in the first 15 minutes, you, or I ain't doing it. John Johnny Cage me, bro. Yeah. Light up my life. Yeah, absolutely. That's what it felt like. Like she'd walked in and said, you kill me off or I'm out of here now. And I will wear the uh, blue for precisely one scene. Yes, indeed. But apparently she was on board for this. The photograph that Beast has on his desk of her at the end is clearly one that was taken at the beginning of this movie. She's wearing the X suit and everything. Really? That's the best picture you had of her. One that was taken less than a week ago. (laughs) This was the last picture taken of Mystique. Look at how miserable she is. It looks like a flipping passport picture. Uh, It's so basic. Head and shoulders... They do that a lot in bad movies. They go, here's a promo picture of Will Smith from the original Independence Day. It's on the wall of the White House. (laughs) Anyway, they do it with Superman in Supergirl. They have like a a promo pic of Christopher Mm. Reeve going, hmm. Yes. Anyway, so you're saying at the top you got um, McAvoy's performance. At the bottom, would you say, was uh, uh, Jennifer Lawrence, one of the most highly paid, highly celebrated female actors in the world? I would not say, despite what I've just said about her, I still wouldn't put her performance at the bottom. Okay. Scott, go to your room. (laughs) Stop listening at the door, you little creep. So... Following on from McAvoy, my next performances that I actually thought were really good, um, and this is the point at which I think we are probably going to disagree, is Fassbender. Mm -hmm. Now, Fassbender checked out about halfway through Days of Future Past. Yeah. He was not there for Apocalypse. There's that one scene when he says, not my babies, and his wife and daughter are killed by the same stupid arrow. And then he just does, shuts himself off and does my dead family. And just like, he's just there. I guess I'm killing whoever and whatever now. They could have got a promotional cardboard cutout from Assassin's Creed. (laughs) And they would have had roughly the same level of emotional engagement as they got from Fassbender in Apocalypse. Am I wrong? Tell me I'm wrong. You're not wrong. Okay. He was there, he was angry, but like, just draw a frowny face on that. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And so for this, I actually felt like he'd re-engaged and I I appreciated that a lot. I thought his his interaction with Sophie Turner was actually really quite strong. There wasn't enough of it, but what there was was pretty good. 
Um, one of the best scenes I thought was between him and Nick Holt. And Nick Holt is the other one that who I think carries this movie in terms of performance. Okay. It's a small part. He doesn't have a lot to do. And ultimately, that's that's the major criticism that I can level at almost everybody in this film who isn't Sophie Turner. They didn't have enough to do. It, they don't treat it as an ensemble And Sophie cast. Turner has the same thing over and over again she to does. do. Now, I thought what she did was good. On a sort of a mid-range level kind of good. Can you sum it up in a word? No. A sound? Uh. The fact that not enough time has passed since Apocalypse. The fact that she was a teenager, she was playing a teenager in Apocalypse. Of course I appreciate the fact that her age, she was playing younger than her age when she did Apocalypse. She's playing slightly older than her age now. But she still looks like she's about 18, 19. Mm. It doesn't work for a woman who is supposed to be in her mid-twenties, who is affected by all of this stuff, past trauma resurfacing, current relationships falling apart, future terror of what's going to happen to her and the world around her, utter fear of her own self, confusion by watching the aliens that she's encountered. There's so much going on for this character. Nobody could possibly feel all that stuff at once. Teaspoon. (laughs) So, really, for what they get out of her it's reasonable it's not great but it could have been a lot worse it at least they didn't go full-on carry which was what i was expecting was Mm -hmm. just like raw the world i hate it pull it to pieces but the thing that frustrated me the most was actually nothing to do with her performance it was to do with the fact that they go straight into gene's gone up to help gene's been possessed by the phoenix force all the rest of this is about gene trying to handle the phoenix force now that's fine if we've just had an entire movie very heavily focused on sophie turner and her character and getting to know her we still don't know gene we still don't know who this character is how this affects her how it changes her we don't know any of that after four movies one of which concerned the Phoenix Force doing the same shit to her. Mm. We don't know really what makes Jean tick. It doesn't seem like they were particularly interested in her as a woman, as a character, at any point in the 19 years we've known but her. But that's the thing. that Those old movies, that's Famke Janssen. Yeah. And that's a totally different character. This is different things happening to her at a different time, for all intent and purposes. Same as Stuart it's and It's a parallel McAvoy, universe. Yeah. Exactly. It's, we can't say, well, we know what happened to Famke Janssen, therefore we understand her as a character. That's no. not how it works. We could, if those films were really, really great, mm. and we could... By proxy, and also yeah. these films are really, really great. They had themselves paid attention to those really good films, but those films were bland and shallow. These films are bland and shallow. Exactly. We got nothing to work and it's, with, folks. And it's not like we can even say something like, well, we didn't really get an awful lot of Black Widow in Avengers. No, but we got enough to get a feel for who she was. There what were enough we sharp little scenes over the years exactly. with Black Widow that gave us little bits exactly. of Natasha. Exactly. It's not the length, it's not the time spent necessarily, but it is about the intensity. And ultimately, the only thing I remember about Sophie Turner from Apocalypse is the stupid remark about how the third films are always the shit ones. So you, that's not enough. You need to give us more than that for us to care what's happening to this girl. Although the line was bang on. 
<laughs> so when it comes down to that, I thought... They were supposed to be at the time talking about the third X-Men movie, uh, The Last Stand, saying, well, you gave it to Brett Ratner, and obviously the third one was nowhere near as good as the second two. They weren't supposed to be talking about themselves no, at that point. indeed. But yeah, so I... I also I, Logan, so get stuffed. Yeah. So <laughs> overall, I, I thought Sophie Turner did fine. She did a reasonable job. Uh, she's conveying a, a young woman struggling with the multitudes that she contains. Mm. And I actually think that in the most intense scenes, she actually carried that pretty well. Okay. The problem is that there's too much focus on... Just flying, up, flying in up in the air and, and with yeah, the powers. Exactly. Oh, an X-Men film that mostly focuses on, like, spectacle that's actually not especially interesting spectacle. Exactly, yeah. You don't that's say. That's the problem. It's, it's a dull. lame fireworks show, and it always has been. Yeah. It's dull, and you're not giving us any character stuff to engage with while the dull stuff is happening. So mm. that, that was my issue there. Hmm. Um, Jessica Chastain... I love Jessica Chastain with a passion. My One of my worst fears was that what they gave her to do in this would be so awful that yeah. it would put me off her other stuff. It really hasn't. She's, she's Jessica Chastain. She's amazing. Her presence is fantastic. She is criminally underused. Yeah. Horrendously underused. It feels like a chunk of what she had to do and say was probably cut. Was it, it, Highly likely... Um, the the elements that she has to work with are next to non-existent, but I like the fact that she was there and just the way she carries herself put more into the character than actually existed in the character. Yeah. So there's that. That shouldn't be happening it's like when you get in Idris, a professional level film. It's like when you get Idris Elba to play a character who's not especially important exactly. and suddenly he brings yeah. all this He's Idris Elba. He's still Idris Elba, so that's fine. We can just sit here and watch that. All right, then. Um, one thing I, that kind of took me by surprise, I really like the scene where she runs in the heels. Now, you know how I normally feel about running in heels. But she's an alien. Exactly. It makes her feel so weird and uncanny and wrong. Yeah. But it works. There were times when I was looking at her face and going, does she even have eyebrows anymore? She looked inhuman. They made her so pale and she's got very deep set eyes anyway. And so uh, she didn't actually, like, she only started to look really quite magnificent at the end when she was starting to absorb the Phoenix Force. Or near the end. Mm. Third act. Yeah. Yeah. But again, there's there's nothing to the alien character that she's playing. The same as there's nothing to any of the other characters that the alien characters that surround her. Nobody is characterised at all, and I, I I don't know whether that's supposed to make it easier when um, Jean pulls them all to pieces at the end. But it, it literally just felt like she was again shredding up cardboard cutouts from they Assassin's Creed. May as well have been the Dark Elves from Thor: The Dark World. Worse. Worse? Worse. Worse. At least Malekith had some motivation. Oh my God. There's no explored motivation with these guys at all. It comes down to our planet got blown up. We're here to steal yours. They mentioned the D- Dabari Empire. Dabari That's who they are. And I, I went back and checked. The Dabari is, uh, is a real, real in this case, meaning fictional group of people who were actually um, uh, at the mercy of Phoenix in the uh, Claremont comics. Mm. I didn't even know that. That is such a nerdy pull. I didn't even know that, so I, I, I'm I'm pleased that that was there. It also feels like the kind of nerdy pull that was maybe on a card that got slid across the table by the executives at Marvel and told, change scrolls <laughs> now, change scrolls to the Dabari Empire. You know what I'm thinking? 
What? You think with this script you can have the scroll? <laughs> you can have the Dabari. <laughs> <laughs> At home, stolen pictures of mountain tops with him on top. Lemon yellow sun, arms raising a beam. A deadly. So it, it feels like they were probably the Skrulls or they might have been more like the Shi'ar Empire. My guess is that their original, what they were called and their original backstory was something Marvel want to play with mm. and they don't want these guys fucking up everything. Yeah. Which to me suggests Marvel ain't doing Dark Phoenix for a long damn time. Yeah. And when they do, it will be full on crazy I Eric the Red so. Gladiator, I fucking Deathbird, so. all of these kooky bastards, the Star Jammers. Yeah. All of it, the Hellfire Club. Oh this, yes, bring me the Hellfire Club. This Please. bunch of vampire the masquerade dingleberries. Absolutely. <laughs> And I could imagine Marvel making them like... Get me Emma Frost in her pants! Okay. Uh, I could imagine Marvel making them like super threatening to begin with, but then you realise after a while that they're just oh, a bunch of ponces. they're just a bunch of douches. Brilliant. So they can't possibly handle Phoenix. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. But we'll leave that to the professionals, shall yes. we? But that's what this feels like. It feels like the X-Men series all the time has been a bunch of kiddies putting on a nativity play. Yep. Yep. And it's like, well, some of these things you actually got quite well, but let's just let the big boys play with it. And that's honestly, that just to move briefly on to the next point, which was to do with script and, and direction. Well, you've, you've jumped over Ty Sheridan. Yes, here. I know. I it's have. very easy to ignore him. But it is. <laughs> okay, all right. Let's, let's just, the last on my list of performances, the bottom of the heap, the sole of the shoe, the you thing get... that made me want to throw up just for something to do. Ty, I don't know what to say. Ty you're get, Sheridan. You're getting the wrath of Sharon here. He's, oh, my God. He's so bad. And here's the thing. I couldn't work out whether he's bad because he's just bad, whether he's bad because he was poorly directed, or whether he's bad because they've done this on purpose because everybody hates Scott Summers. And I get that. But here's the thing. Everybody hates Scott Summers because he's the Boy Scout. He's boring. He's sensible. He always takes the the, the kind of the moral option. He's the guy everybody thought Captain America was. You can of. do a great Scott Summers. You can do a great Scott Summers. But it's got. he's got to be surrounded by people who are over the top and intense and colourful and mad and ridiculous and, and just... Well, he could play the straight man, ultimately, then. Exactly, exactly. And this just felt like, why are you here? Why are you even here? Why have you ever been here in these films? I I know he's there because there's this thing about Gene and Scott are a couple, but there's a a bit of the beginning where the two of them are, are like, kissing in her bedroom or something. I'm just sat there going, 
This just feels, this feels like someone got two teenagers together and made them kiss for their own amusement. This just feels unpleasant. Go on, kiss her, smell her oh, hair. I, it was just horrid. They have no chemistry at all. And it just, oh. So you got here the crafting of a nothingness. Yes. Colon, script and direction. Yeah. Uh, which and is by... what the original film was going to be called. <laughs> Indeed. Um, by script and direction, I mean script and direction. Inverted and I'm doing air comedy. quotes, yeah. Because the, the what struck me about the script for this, the it's lines mostly just, in this, Gene, you must it's, remain it's calm. It's mostly just a rough outline of what's happening in the scene. It almost makes me feel like somebody read the script direction out instead of the lines. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, We're here to get you back, Gene, which is why we look super threatening. The overwhelming feeling that I got for most of the script, for any part of the script that was not being delivered by McAvoy, Fassbender, Holt, or very occasionally Turner, was that it was X-Men fanfic. Um, it felt very first drafty. Fanfic suggests that they're fans. It feels like they're fans. And you now having told me that this is a bit of a passion project for Simon Kimberg, that's mm-hmm. that's the feeling that I get. And when and I'm not when I say fanfic. So it's like a very high budget fan film that you'd see with cosplay on yeah. uh, on YouTube. Absolutely, yeah. I and and I I have read some absolutely exquisite fanfic. I have read fanfic for properties that in my head goes in canon because it's so good and so well connected with the the story as a whole but this did not feel like that what i mean is it felt disconnected it did not feel like a continuation of apocalypse it felt like somebody had come along and done a consequences story um following on from that that they'd they'd created their own little pocket universe where the things that they wanted to happen happened that weren't affected by anything going on around it and And wouldn't wouldn't affect affect anything anything moving forwards exactly yeah it very much felt like a cul-de-sac like you just you just go down this road and then we just you you go down that road you get phoenix and then that you You want phoenixes because that's how you get phoenix but the whole point of phoenixes is it is reborn and carries on Absolutely. And and that's Perhaps you're not a better getting that universe. feeling from this at all. However, fanficky and first drafty is a wild improvement on Apocalypse, which to me, the, well, the way I've described it here is it felt like a vague improvisation by a group of hungover drama students with nothing better to do on a Sunday morning. Hmm. And whether it's because they know they can't go anywhere now whether it's because they are acutely aware of the fact that this is not their baby anymore, I don't know. But just the apathy, that feeling of we really aren't that fussed about being here, very much extended into the script. And mm. it, it, there was just this constant feeling of, really, that was the best line you could come up with in that particular context? And it just felt like no one had worked anything through or read it back to themselves to see what it sounded like. The the worst one, the one that really made me cringe and go, come on, I could think of two better ways of saying that now, was um, Jennifer Lawrence's The Women Are Always Saving the Men Around Here. Maybe you should think about changing the name to The Ex-Women. Just, okay, how about... Since the women are doing all the work around here, how about you think about changing the name of the team? Just so that you don't have to say the word women twice in the same sentence. Uh, I actually would have preferred just <sighs> the women pull all the weight in this team. Why the hell do you even call us ex-men? Yeah. Yeah, that would also be fine. And it refers back to an issue with the original film mm. that there were 
two women and one man mm. in Charles Xavier's X-Men. Yeah. That's not me saying too many women. It's me saying not enough mutants in general. They should have started with a team. And as far as the direction's concerned, I mean, it, it's his first, it's his first go, major yeah. effort. But seriously, it's perfunctory at best. He's not a director in the sense that he has a vision that he wants to craft. There's no flair for it. There, no. was, there was not one shot that was like, well, that's, that's kind of beautiful. And if you can't get a beautiful shot out of a Phoenix film... Yep. Indeed. And, and you know, I appreciate what he wants, you know, his efforts with the effects, and I appreciate his passion for the story, but when it comes down to it, his his direction is the equivalent of... Lego bricks? Ty Sheridan. Whoa. And you hate Ty Sheridan. I, it's Well, all right, of Scott Summers then. It's just like, you're bland, you're boring, why are you here? Yeah, but Scott, Sum- you, Scott Summers, the actual Scott character, this. yeah, has gone elsewhere. Like, he's a villain in the comics and has been for a long time. He decided after years and years of devoting himself to Charles Xavier's dream, fuck this, Charles is wrong. And he's stuck with that. It wasn't just a, oh, Scott's a villain. Now he's good again. They, they've really, like, kept him going. And he's not just this. Mm, yeah. And there's a, another version of Scott because the younger versions of them from the past have been beamed forwards. And there's a whole bunch of, like, young kid X-Men running around, like versions of the original team. And so you've got young Scott having to reckon on his future angry self. And Gene, the same. Mm. So it's uh, some fun stuff has happened in the comics. Yeah. And they've played with the characters. There have been so many... Like, one of the books was just all the ex-women. And they've got so much that they could have mined in these films and haven't. Mm. And it's so good that they're moving on. Yes, indeed. So, So honestly, when I came out of the film, I'm like, well, that was less than two hours. And it's done. It was, I I described it to Maya as like pulling off a Band-Aid, but not quickly. So it gets done like, ow, but slowly. And when you finish pulling it off, you realize there's a scar under there. Mm. One that will never fully fade. Mm. Jean herself needed more angry music. She needed more fire behind her. So this is Violet from Hole. Um, and the last one you got here is that's, it's all caps, that's not how funerals work! Yes. Right. This, just to explain, this was probably my most hated scene in the whole film. Whoa, okay. And it's when they come back in from having just buried Raven, and the, I think it's Scott... Kurt. By the way, may I pause for a moment? Raven's death did not affect me at all. I was staring at it like I was looking at a bus timetable. Mm. And I was like thinking, logically speaking, this should tear me apart. Mm. I remember Raven from first class changing the character around, mutant and proud. Mm. And that magnificent performance that Lawrence gave back then. 
and she's she's really good in Days of Future Past. Why does this not abo- not bother me? Why am I not sad? Nothing. Nothing. I felt like a, a, a glass-eyed psychopath staring at her. Yeah, same here. And I was just okay. So yep, like like we saw in the trailer, she's dead. And all I could think of was just contractual dispute, makeup difficulties. Jennifer Lawrence is sick to death of this. Nothing about Raven's path made me sad. All I could think of was the what was going on under the hood. Mm. The meta narrative of, of of what was going on, which is a macrocosm of the entire film. I couldn't really emotionally engage with this film because that's just it. Yeah. But that's not at all the case with Endgame. I knew the contracts were up on these guys. I was a wreck, a wreck on the floor. I was. I, I'm still in mourning. I don't think I'll ever really get over it. And the difference is so vast. Mm. It is the chasm of space between those two films. What I think distresses me is that when I watch something that has that impact on me, and by which I mean none, and I'm just sat there going... Yep. 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 No soul in there. This is certainly a a collection of celluloid. Um, (laughs) Actually, it's digital now. Okay, this is this is a collection of pixels? Pixels. Okay. Um, that There are people who see the films that affect me very, very deeply. In the same in the way. In the same way. Yeah, I get that. People who watch A Monster Calls and Sniggered. Yeah. People who watch Endgame and go, I don't understand how you can get emotionally involved with these people. <laughs> They're just so ridiculously over the top and, and not really human. And I just... I'm like, are we... Are we Seeing the same thing here? Is this... Are we looking at the same performance? Are we... But it's obviously not just performance, because McAvoy's performance in this didn't seize me in the same way. I didn't find myself particularly... Emo- I recognised that it was really good. Apocalypse did a hell was. of a lot of damage. I wonder how I would have felt... Hey, yeah, I think you're right. After... If we'd just watched Days of Future Past and then watched and then this... And gone straight to fit, yeah. After just two you years. right, actually. But Apocalypse did so much damage. It just stomped around, smashing everything, mm. just crushing it and, and making it meaningless. Yeah. There we go. Singer, you wrecked my childhood. Singer didn't wreck anything that belonged to me, mm. but you did a great disservice to this comic series. Yeah. As okay. did you, Kinberg, writer of X-Men Apocalypse. Mm. Yeah. One of the things I said that was worst about that film was the script. Yeah. That's, on, that's on Kinberg. Yeah. Okay, that's so, not how funerals yeah, work. Yeah, so the, they come back in from having buried Raven and uh, Storm, Nightcrawler, Cyclops and Quicksilver are confronted by this huge group uh, of I don't think it's Quicksilver. Children. He would have been in intensive care at that point after being clobbered by Phoenix and only comes back at the very end of the film and seems fine. So, so Storm, Nightcrawler and Cyclops come in after the funeral and they're confronted by this huge group of children. And it's entirely focused on Scott giving this speech again, inverted commas, about how she's, she's, she did a 
thing and it hurts somebody, but she's still our friend. She's still Jean. Okay, first off, we didn't know who Jean was before. These kids don't know who Jean is. This doesn't mean a great deal to them. I'm sure she taught them particle physics. But what what got to me was, this is so amazing. It has literally just happened. Now, I know she's a mutant, but there's still processes that you have to go through before you have a funeral for somebody. Deaths have to be registered. Doctors have to be consulted. Yeah. You know? If you're a creepy Heaven's Gate-looking motherfucker, you can bury as many children as you want on your land. If you have to have the funeral before you come in and tell everybody that the person you just buried is dead... She's still wanted by Interpol. It's happening too fast. (laughs) It's happening way too fast. And also... The way this is handled... Where the fuck is Charles? Where the fuck is the person who's supposed to be explaining to these children, some of whom are very young, all of whom are mutants? Okay. Some of whom might... They may explode. Exactly! Exactly! These kids are going to be sat there, and I can guarantee you, looking at the percentages, at least four of the people sitting on that stairway are thinking, shit, if that could happen to her, that could happen to me. My mutant power could go crazy. I might explode and start killing people. Everyone around me might start exploding and killing people. Oh, my God! How am I supposed to cope with this? This film didn't annoy you. Only that bit. <laughs> okay, I'm going to hop, skip, and jump through a bunch of bullet points that I made. Uh, you've done a lot of work here, a lot of the groundwork in terms of the stuff I was going to uh, be covering. So, um, Hans Zimmer was on scoring duties. He swore after Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice that he wouldn't be doing any other superhero films ever again. That uh, he was just done with that. And uh, Kinberg talked him around and uh, pointed to all the scripts. And clearly, again, Kinberg wanted to legitimise his film. Hans Zimmer is one of the top composers out there. He does some of the best work. He has done amazing work. This wasn't really among it, but it had a tone to it. Mm. It had a driving sensibility to it. And to a degree, it feels like that was to its detriment at times. There was no moments of quiet. Just pull it down. Let it just calm, Mm. hold, let the room be quiet. Deal with this. Instead, it was... And people are talking over it, and it's transitioning from scene to scene. It's just going and going. You know how in The Dark Knight, it's like... And it cuts to the bat signal, and it's like, next scene, next scene. It makes the whole thing feel like And it's just driving and driving. But in that, you've got this heat thing of like tension and crime is going on. And it's like... Something could explode at any moment, but in this, it's actually more like the uh, funereal opening piece of music from uh, the Batman v Superman, "The Beautiful Lie," 
that um, when the Waynes are killed again. It's actually kind of a, a wonderful piece when you listen to it in isolation and you're not watching the disgusting visuals of Zack Snyder and with the pearl necklace scattering everywhere after the guy's literally put his gun underneath it and put it in her mouth. And it's like, yeah, I, I get what you're doing, Zack. It's, it's not a very subtle point that you're making. Cheers. But in this case, because the film felt small... And because the situation was just the same ongoing situation all the time, it just felt, as you say, like a trailer. Like It's it's not a big crime drama opera. It's small and personal. And under those circumstances, the driving relentlessness of it doesn't benefit the film. No, it doesn't do it any favours. And it also means that as well as not having those moments of quiet where you let the audience just absorb what's happening... It also doesn't have those emotional peaks that should come at certain moments to really... Because music can be an amazing way to get somebody to engage yeah. with and Zimmer an emotional scene. And has a direct line to my heart. Absolutely. Over and over so again. So it's, it's not that he is not capable of doing that if that's what he's being directed to do. Hmm. Other little things, and these are... That these wouldn't really have benefited it at all, but it's just worth noting that the dropped thread of the fact that Quicksilver is Magneto's son did not get picked up again in this film with both Quicksilver and Magneto in it mm. and never got resolved. Eric ends the film not knowing he has a son. Quicksilver's back at the X-Mansion doodling around the place. Yeah, and this is especially important... Well, it was especially important in Apocalypse, but it's especially important because he's lost a family. I can imagine that I have a son scene where he's just embracing this little... And just Evan Peters actually going, oh, I don't even know what to think anymore. I've got nothing smart-alecky to say. Mm. I've got a dad. And just that is something. You had those actors, you had these pieces to just bring back together. It's just a little thing, but it, it closes it out. Mm. It says, and we're done. You know? This has been restored. You know, Tony Stark got to talk to his father at the end of uh, Endgame. That was a little, like, that was a thread that kept recurring, and it was key to Tony's development. And in terms of Eric, maybe not being so lonely all the time, mm. and having this smart aleck kid around, who's actually 30-something, it will be good for him, mm. because he's a war criminal. So he kind of needs something to even him out. Yeah. Anyway. Why keep Storm around just to chill your drinks? Why is Alexandra Ship in this these two films? She's an excellent actress. She's got vast potential. Her name is Aurora Munro. That is Storm's name. Back in Days of Future Past, James Howlett says to Charles Xavier, a couple of years from now you're going to meet some kids. Scott Summers, Jean Grey, Storm. And I practically shouted at the screen, her name is Aurora Munro. She is the premier black female superpowered hero, if not superhero, in cinema. She's incredibly recognisable. People don't even know her fucking name. These films have gone 19 years giving us nothing on Storm. The biggest middle finger in the world to Fox, all the executives, all the writers, all of this misuse of Storm. I cannot wait for her to come from Wakanda. Go to Wakanda. Come from Wakanda. Oh, okay. You know she's from Wakanda. <laughs> Wakanda forever. 
I will reiterate that the uh, uh, same tactic used over and over again of crowding round Jean and saying you've got to keep calm was manifestly stupid within the actual context of the film. It was like, what you're doing is agitating her, obviously, and we can see it is. Mm -hmm. Why does no one ever pick up on this? It It causes a death. Yes. That could have been prevented. Yes, it does. All Charles is good at, if anything, is de-escalation. Yes. He could freeze everyone in place. Even if that means freezing everyone but him and Jean. Just talk to me, Jean. And she's all flaring up and he's like, this actually happened in X-Men 3. I did this, Jean. Take it out on me. Oh, I'm dust now. Off I go. (laughs) To inhabit the body of a comatose patient. But this, Are we ever going to talk about this? No. If if they're using mutant powers as a an allegory for mental health problems, yeah, then they keep pissing those opportunities up against a wall. Yeah. Mama, take this bath for me. I can't use it. that is absolutely certain though is that there's no thing that could be written about in the X-Men universe in the uh, uh, comic books that Fox can't do in a shitty and small way Genosha being the possibly best example of this Genosha is an island unto itself it is a uh, futuristic cityscape ruled over by Magneto it is covered in thousands of mutants at at its peak and it is a haven for mutants this is where Eric goes and says do not Come here, humans. This is our land. We mean you no harm, but you got to leave us alone. And when it's that so- doesn't work, he goes and gets himself an asteroid and says the same thing. Well, Genosha is after asteroid. Then. Oh, is it? Sorry. And it's after Avalon. Okay. That is a Genosha presided over by Magneto as its potentate. Genosha was in the Extinction Agenda, which predates Avalon. I know my X-Men. So it would appear. Anyway, uh, Genosha has been destroyed by Sentinels at least once. Mm. But it's this magnificent island. And here, it's an allotment. It's a crappy little fucking gardening place where they grow turnips. And there's like five people there and a bunch of old rusty bomb shelters. (laughs) It's rubbish. And that's the X-Men movies. It's a rubbish shit version of what was in the comics. Oh, I I forgot that that was meant to be his Genosha. It is. It's a version of Genosha. Yeah. But it's, oh, imagine God. their version of Wakanda. Ugh. It would look much like this. Yeah. It, it feels like the Morlocks, but with sunshine, because everybody there is clearly someone who's been outcast from society. The Morlocks, but with sunshine. 
And like his dudes, Magneto's dudes, never got named. No. There's like there was hair metal. I called him because he's <laughs> oh, got the guy like horseshoe. <laughs> and then there's Callisto too. I don't know who that was, mm. but it looks a bit like Callisto from X Men Three. Mm. And I, I want Marvel, and I know they will, to not do that. I want them to actually name all of these characters and give you a little bit on them, so that we actually invest in them. Yeah. Even the Guardians of the Galaxy, that Korath is a character that we know and we can Absolutely. invest in a little that's, bit. Yeah, that's the thing. You get these little flashes of characters, and there are loads of characters knocking around the Marvel movies, but you do get the feeling that when the camera goes off to follow the hero doing their thing, yeah. that character carries on and does their own thing somewhere else. We might not be seeing it, but it's happening. <clears throat> Another note I made for myself, there is no way on God's green earth... That's Jessica Chastain signed up to play a character named Gruck. And that there is no way on God's green earth that Jessica Chastain signed up to play a character called Vuck. And she didn't. Clearly, she signed up to play the villain of the piece, Lilandra, who isn't a villain, you idiots. Doesn't matter. Just just make her Deathbird. It's so simple. She's Deathbird. But yeah, that, that would be what happened in the changing. And again, I'm going to say that Disney was behind that. Um, somebody said on Twitter that there is an... Act- is it true that there is an action sequence in uh, Dark Phoenix, which basically amounts to a bunch of X-Men trying to cross a slightly busy road? Oh, yeah. No, 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 that's true. And I said, yeah, yeah, that, that, that is actually the case. Yeah, mm. But there's a bit where Cyclops has to get up on top of a car... D- and it's kind of like There's Mad Max Fury in Road scene. in that regard, only yeah. it's stationary. Yes, yeah. There is a bit in that scene where the the crux of the tension is that Charles is this side of a bus, Scott is that side of a bus, and they can't see each other. Oh, dear me. Shortly after that, Jean pulls Charles out of his wheelchair and walks him up the stairs in a way while he's screaming. And I think they actually handled it... I think they believed they were being sensitive, especially mm. to people who are actually disabled, and, and what a terrible indignity this is supposed to be. However, someone else on Twitter said, I get that it's supposed to be deeply serious, but it just looked like James McAvoy was doing the Ministry of Silly Walks. And that's a terrible, terrible outcome of a dramatic scene. Yeah. It is. That's an epic fail. Yeah. Also, the fact that she crushed his chair, even as that was happening, and obviously the the misery that she's still pulling him up the stairs Mm. is still happening, I was thinking, she's going to be herself again by the end of this, and they're going to regret doing that to that chair, because how are they going to get him home now? There's also a symbolic uh, importance attached to Magneto's helmet. Mm. Uh, it's obviously it's, it's a very recognisable one. It's uh, unveiled and, and given an origin in uh, first class. And it's a, I said back then, it is a beautiful piece of craft work that they actually managed to bring this into the world. But it's there for a very specific reason, so that Charles can't get it into Eric's head. Mm. When he puts it on, he's like, sorry, Charles, I'm got, I've got to go do this. That is his, I'm going to do my thing. You can't stop me with the one thing you've got. Charles hat when he brings it out at this point technically it is under those circumstances but when he goes after Jean she crushes his head with it and then tears it apart and chucks him out a window and he's like well I guess if I haven't got my hat (laughs) (laughs) I can't do anything see I did get that that's like I'm going up against a psychic gonna need my helmet but he doesn't know that she's a telekinetic as well and that that's not going to be affected by the fact that he's wearing a hat in fact, that's going to make it worse. <laughs> that's 
especially since it's a sharp hat with pointy corners. And when she squeezes it, he ends up with like little lines all over his face. We inferred that. There's no discussion about it. Like, hair metal needed to say to him, by the way, it's hair metal, the German, because he's Mr. Oh, as in H-E-R-R. Yeah, it's a double pun. Hair metal should have said to him, mein mein Führer. Because he is. Um, you can't go up against her and he, and he needs to go, well, I've got my special hat on. She can't get into my mind with this one on. And then uh, she tossed him out the window and he's like, ah, Faith and Begora, that didn't feckin' work. And uh, like, at least like show the audience he was thinking along those lines. Mm. You see, this is the downside, Simon, when you write a script in which most things are explained. When you don't explain things, people think it's not happening. Yeah. Would you agree that this was a man's version of a woman's story? Because whenever I read Simon Kinberg saying, this character's really complex, I think, no, they're not. And a woman would have been able to, not every woman, but a woman who knows how to write complex characters would be able to at least give you some insight into how to make this character complex in a way that women would find complex. Yeah, yeah. Rather just, oh, they have a very complex relationship. Well, Well, you say that, but I'm not fucking seeing it. See, this... Right. I would it's say a woman's story. It is a woman's story. It's absolutely a woman's And it was written story. originally it's, by Chris Claremont. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, it, when you actually read the story on the page in the comics... It's basic it as fuck. Just, but if you're going to do it now, 40 years later... Yeah, it's... By it, the way, the actual death of Phoenix, where Cyclops is going... And firing up on, on the page of the comic. Mm. Like that one where he's cradling her. That The last time Phoenix ever was the, the end of that saga was the month I was born, August really? 1980. Oh, that's awesome. I had that comic. I had that comic for yeah. that same reason. <laughs> Where he thinks the complexity comes in is, well, she's a teenage girl. I know she's meant to be in her mid-twenties, but let's face it, she's a teenage girl. She's a teenage girl, and she's, she's filled with this amazing power. And that's where the complexity is. Yes, and... And? This is coming back to what you said originally. And... The the fact that the fact that there is now Captain Marvel to compare this to mm. that's the other thing. I've okay. I the next point is this is basically a bad version of Captain Marvel. Pause what you're going to say and resume as soon as I've said all of these bullet points. Okay. It is set in the 1990s. A young woman with potential zooms around in a crazy stealth fighter until there's an explosion. Encounters an astonishing alien force which inhabits her body. Manifests as an orange, golden, glowing energy in her eyes, hair and hands. There are multiple shape-shifting aliens. The evil leader has stolen the form of another woman. And some aliens want to control the power this young woman holds. She rails against them and... And hurts her former friends. Dark Phoenix ends with Jean sacrificing herself. Captain Marvel ends with her mastering her powers and going off to help people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you've just summed up the, the vast majority of it. But it also does many other things, including having humour, subverting expectations on the usual villains, and empowering the women watching rather than warning them of the dangers of too much power in their fragile emotional little hands. Indeed. He did try to get this backpedaled a little bit at the end when Vuck, or Gruck, what's her name? Vuck. Vuck says, your emotions make you weak, and she roars back, no, my emotions make me strong. And this is the equivalent of a man trying to relate to women. Simon Kinberg does not understand what emotions are! (sighs) I'm beginning to understand myself. 
Mm. It's. It's like say how it's like. God, form words, woman. Women were deemed too emotional for podcasting. It's like saying having skin makes you weak or having skin makes you strong. It it is. Debating whether or not having them makes you strong or weak is fucking irrelevant. They are there. It's how you use them. How you interact with them, how you understand them, how you communicate them, Simon. But this was in Captain Marvel, uh, um Del, uh, Lana Del Rey um, keeps uh, telling her you're getting too emotional when you're fighting uh, and uh, you're, you've got to put a lid on that if you're going to be able to Yeah, no, be- no, no, but the whole point be- of that is it's not... Th- I don't know how... I don't know My point is it's a subtext of that's what she's challenged by at it the beginning is. of the film. No one ever tells her that at any point, a gene this, uh, no. at any point in the film. It's never really a big issue. And it's at the very end it's like, oh yeah, emotions, those are... Good. Yeah, but it's the it's the difference between you're allowing your emotions to rule you, you need to control them, you need to put effort into containing them. That's different from an alien saying the fact that you even have emotions is what makes you humans little weak puny things. Well we know that's not true. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it's not really challenging us. No. Right. Indeed. And also, the way Jean turns it around is, no, that's what makes me strong. She's not saying that on behalf of all humanity. She's just saying that because she's her and a woman. Yeah. Having emotions is not what makes Carol strong. It's how she turns them around and uses them and interacts with them and all the blah. But yeah, so bottom line, this would have been bad anyway. Mm. But the fact that there is Captain Marvel to compare it to, and you're absolutely right about the parallels... Uh, none of which occurred to me because it doesn't feel like the same thing at all. Mm-hmm. But it does also help me to understand why there's there's like a trinity of ex-women who I was really f- flipping obsessed with. Rogue, Jean and Carol Danvers? Yeah. And and there's and the interactions between the well not that there's many interactions between all three of them but obviously there's a close connection between Rogue and yeah. um, Captain Marvel so Ms Marvel at the time yeah sorry now, Rogue and Carol now promoted yes indeed um, I will also say as a plus point the scene on the train when Magneto which is obviously hilarious for a lot of these people watching yes. maybe they've just seen John Wick three and they thought you're supposed to laugh at action maybe. scenes yeah yeah uh, but sense. yeah when when Magneto's like fucking dudes up and like like they could have played the Henry Jackman and I would have gone yeah okay that's a good return to form because Eric is super determined here and ends up actually trying to protect Jean and and if the people they were up against were a well-developed opposing force especially if they had their own thing going on and the X-Men were trying not to murder them but at the same time like you are not getting to Jean Mm. that then makes it better than the end of X-Men 3 where they gleefully murder a bunch of sewer-dwelling Morlocks remember that time when Storm fried Callisto alive until her lip ring was red hot Mm. and then smirked about it afterwards I just murdered someone with lightning (laughs) yeah the lack of music the lack of that that emotional rise and fall the idea that he was trying to do Logan Mm -hmm. makes it worse yeah frankly I mean he was aiming high 
But he clearly didn't but get it, it anything about why Logan was great. He understood Logan at all. He executive produced Logan. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean he had to understand it. Clearly, Agreed. he didn't. Agreed. Okay, let's close out. I'm actually more annoyed now than I was having finished watching the film. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry I've adjectivated you. No, Poked no, you with okay. a metaphorical stick. That's okay. I'm the, hungry as well, so that doesn't help. We'll get you some food. Yes. Do you want a cookie? Yeah. The film ends in a weird way with Charles sat outside a French cafe alone. I swear to God, I thought I was going to see Michael Caine wave at him from another table. But instead, it's just his old buddy, Eric, here to play chess with him. Mm. It seemed like he was trying to do Logan, but at the same time, because this felt so much like Batman v Superman, it also kind of had echoes of The Dark Knight Rises. Mm. This is the ending of The Dark Knight Rises. Effectively, Xavier quits. He's done with the X-Men. He leaves youngsters in charge, you know, like 50-year-old Hank McCoy. And Magneto seems to have quit being Magneto as well. They're just kind of letting the kids move on, which is fine. But there was no scene of that. There was no discussion about that. The fact that it's now called the Jean Grey School suggests... Which happened in the comics as well. So I've got five better ways this movie could have ended. Okay, go on then. Okay, number one. Eric goes to murder Jean, and Charles decides enough really is goddamn enough and wipes his mind clean, like he did in X-Men 25 uh, during Fatal Attractions. It's, it should then lead to onslaught, but in this case, it's just Charles taking responsibility for the fact that his close friend on and off for many, many decades now, really isn't going to stop killing, and he has to finally be responsible for him. Mm. And he has to weigh up, can I save Jean, or shall I just let Eric kill her? And he decides that he is going to try to keep Jean alive, but that Eric really has crossed the line this last time. Yeah. Which is a really... Because Eric's trying to do this for vengeance yeah. for, for Raven, and it's like, this is not what Raven would have wanted. But this is, this is a fantastic corner for uh, Charles to turn, because one of the factors that epitomises Charles Xavier is he is a man of inaction. He yeah. is a man who will sit there and watch things happening yeah. and not do anything about it. Especially James McAvoy's yes. version. Yeah, and it's, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that that makes him a bad character. It makes all. him a good, the flawed character that could be explored and a, they didn't. Yeah. One of the, in fact, something that I actually found myself identifying with really strongly. I've always felt like Jean is a really good epitome of how I felt and certainly was as a a younger person I was sat there in this thinking I'm Charles here Hmm. that's worrying (laughs) not really you've grown up Mm. that's a good thing you could run your own mutant school (laughs) 
I believe we, we know how to do it now. Uh, so, yeah, uh, he wipes Eric's mind, effectively blanking him, effectively killing him. Mm-hmm. He is distraught and cedes the school to the stewardship of Hank, telling Hank that he has made too many mistakes to lead the young mutants of the future, but that he trusts his old friend to do better than him and learn from his, Charles, hubris and inaction. He then retires and goes into seclusion. A second way to this movie could have ended is the same ending, but Xavier drowns his sorrows in a bar, and a gruff man sits down beside him. Charles clocks the man and mutters, Go fuck yourself. Logan's eyes flare, and Charles smiles and tells him to relax. We've met before. He then orders two beers and asks Logan if he's ever had any extended schooling. Effectively saying, you know, he's, I'm going to talk to this man, send him on his way to uh, Jean, the Jean Grey school so that he can help take care of these kids, giving Logan something to do. Because yeah. he knows that that's the path Logan's going to take. Mm. So he wants to encourage that. That would make sense, and it would be a nice little final appearance of Hugh Jackman. Yeah. It's a forward echo of Logan as well. That's why I wrote that. I was like, just like, let's finish on Charles and Logan so this kind of echoes Logan. Yeah. And then... Hiya, hi, hi, I'm Caliban. Just going to come here and sit down, be your drinking buddy. Go fuck yourself. Okay, uh, another different ending. Near the end, as Jean is held captive, Famke Jansen turns up in her mind, the Shining style, as Jean's future self, and tells her that she is going to have to die to protect her world, but that things are going to be okay and that death is simply a doorway. I think that would have been really powerful and would have given Famke Jensen a nice respectful, like, we're doing Phoenix now. There is actually a place for you in this story. Yeah. And the idea that just it's, it mirrors the Charles talking to his older self and, and just it puts that in the hands of women. Mm. And I love that as an idea. Um, and number four, which could again link to that one, Phoenix goes supernova. And since she's host to God herself, apparently... She remakes the universe benevolent Thanos style. We are aware that things have all changed, but it's left to Disney to work out how mutants now fit in the MCU. So there's a big flash, and then there's a, a, a just a, a voice, like the end of Akira. Where are we now? Someplace else. Like people are like, well, what does that mean? And it's like, well, I guess you'll find out yeah. somewhere, somewhere. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and like I said to you before, the fact that the Phoenix is the Phoenix Force is a, a a life force that's existed in the universe since it began, and that kind of parallels with what the Infinity Gems have been. You can link that up with Thanos destroying the Infinity Gems, tie the two together, and then you have your universes in a little figure mm. of eight. Yeah. And number five, the same ending as number four, but a storybook closes on us and Deadpool sits back in an armchair beside a roaring fire and croons, and they all died happily ever after. That's the 19-year story of X-Men. Guess we're finally done dragging you guys through this one, huh? I won't say which ones were the best, but they rhyme with Schmedpool. Anywho, it's time to go home. Some of us have Disney contracts to vigorously ransack our dignity over. Clean up after yourselves. Don't forget to tip your usher and... There's still the new mutants left to go. Oh, come on! I can give it up.
So let's uh, finish off uh, by uh, my ranking the X-Men movies. I've kind of alluded to this already, and I'll be really, really quick with this, and you can tell me if yours is any different. Mm-hmm. Uh, at uh, Dead Last is Apocalypse. Yep, agreed. Then The Last Stand. Last Stand might be worse for me. Than Apocalypse? Yeah. Fuck. Well, that, my point about Apocalypse was... At the last stand, mm. they had nothing to really compare yeah, it to. No, Just no, no, Spider-Man yeah, 1 and right, 2, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, but okay. but Apocalypse, it was like, dude, Marvel have been doing their thing for eight fucking years. This is what you come up with? Mm-hmm. And not just Marvel. Like, Star Wars had just come out. Like, so much better in terms of quality of blockbuster. Mm-hmm. There is no excuse for Apocalypse to be this bad. Last stand kind of has some excuses. Mm-hmm. And the, it's got Hugh Jackman as well. He elevates it in a way that James McAvoy is unable to with Apocalypse. Yeah. Brand Singer also walked on Last Stand. So did James Marsden. They had to bring in a new director who didn't work particularly well with the actors who had been working with Brian Singer. With Apocalypse, they kept Brian Singer. Everyone was in place. At number 10, third from last, Dark Phoenix. It's crap, but it's not as spectacularly crap as those two. Mm, yeah. I think I'm inclined to agree. I was trying to work out whether Wolverine Origins was maybe slightly worse. It probably is in terms of how it's put together, yeah. but it's got more to recommend it. It's also got Hugh Jackman, yeah, who grounds it again. Like he's like there's just there's bits of Origins Wolverine which are you know genuinely entertaining, which you can't say that about this film. Yeah, there's no genuinely those, engaging or entertaining bits. Those last three, Dark Phoenix, The Last Stand, Apocalypse. I genuinely feel like there is really no need for me to ever watch those films again. Yeah. Uh, then X-Men, the original one. It's a kind of a TV movie non-starter. It's unspectacular by today's standards, but it's got Hugh Jackman. And Patrick Stewart, who slipped into the role incredibly naturally, even if I've never particularly loved Ian McKellen as Magneto. A lot of people did, though. Uh, then Mutants United, X2, the one that everyone says is a fantastic film still. It's no. not, no. but somehow still number seven on this list. Uh, number six, Days of Future Past. It's... Better than it could have been. It's worse than it could have been. That's why it's kind of in the middle here. Mm. Uh, And uh, it's, again, got Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart and James McAvoy and Fassbender on top form at some points when he's shouting at uh, Charles on the plane, for example. Mm. And there's the time in a bottle sequence, which was great fun. And we should never have seen Quicksilver ever again. Mm -hmm. And there's that clean slate ending, which you could kind of stop right there, frankly. You can go. The clean slate. The ultimate tool for a master thief with a record. I already know what it is. The clean slate. It wipes your record clean. Clean as a clean slate. Shut up about the clean slate. Just go. At number five, The Wolverine. That is two thirds of a really good movie. You can turn off uh, uh, at the end or what, you know, I wish I could say you could watch my edit of it that basically pulls all of the stupid Silver Samurai crap out and the final en- enemy he faces is Shingen. Mm. The uh, um, just the regular samurai, the non-silver type, and there's none of that Viper Woman rubbish. But yeah, I, there's there's some beautiful photography. This is the run-up to Logan, so it's James Mangold actually kind of flexing and trying to do, do the best Wolverine film he can, and then the studio step in and go, nope, we're going to make it like the old X-Men films. Mm. At number four, Deadpool 2. I've watched it a lot recently in various different cuts. It's flawed but there's a a real heart to that and it's funny as fuck Mm. and uh it's pretty consistent the whole way through there's no like big drop-off point 
to it. And number three, like, but once we're above that, three, two, and one are all fucking fantastic movies. Two and three, Deadpool and First Class, are frankly neck and neck. Like, they, for what they're trying to do, they achieve very, very highly. Mm, yeah, I agree. I think First Class is probably three for me rather than two, Deadpool being two, and I would probably put Days of Future Past at... No, I can't put it above Deadpool 2. <laughs> um, it, it's weird uh, because... Above the Wolverine, the Wolverine? Well, the Wolverine and Days of Future Past, they suffer from the same thing for me, which, like you said, Days of Future Past for me is half a fucking fantastic movie mm. and half... Uh, and the Wolverine... It's is, less half and half, actually. There's a lot less of the future stuff than you'd remember in Days of Future okay. Past. But All there's right, still too much. Yeah, <laughs> but, but they're both... That and the Wolverine have the same thing. There's a whole chunk that I would like to remove and yeah. it would dramatically improve the film if you Honestly, did. it feels like one that the, the main body of Days of Future Past is Brian Singer doing a pretty convincing Matthew Vaughan impression of just mm. following on from yeah. first class and then doing a totally convincing... Brian Singer impression of the future stuff and going, yeah. this is exactly what I do in the future. Yes, we know, and it's horrible. We know, horrible. Brian, it's bad. Um, so I would say, yeah, Days of Future Past is probably slightly edges out the mm. Wolverine for me. And Deadpool I prefer to First Class. Yeah. I think we need a partial rewatch of some of these. Not the whole series, <laughs> just the better ones. Yeah. I, It'll be worry, interesting. I won't ask you to waste your time doing a full Alex cut of them. No. It'll be interesting to see what order we watch them in because there's an odd sequence to it. We'll figure it out. Mm. And then at number one, Logan, which is head and shoulders above Absolutely. two and three. Like Deadpool's great, but Logan's Logan magnificent. Is yeah. Logan transcends this whole series. And uh, it was almost worth all of this just for Logan. Mm. I feel like Marvel could have achieved Logan... Maybe less bloody. Mm, yeah. But something I d- like I don't it. think Marvel would have made Logan, to be honest. Not in... If it had always been X-Men in the MCU, mm-hmm. I think that would have been too much of a, a a sideways step from what the MCU does. I think they would have made a film where Wolverine and X-23 go on a road trip together and discover yeah, each other that quite way. possibly, but it wouldn't have been Logan. Yeah, it would have been more like The Winter Soldier. Yeah, I think... Which would still have been magnificent, just not that... And this was Logan. Yeah. Just time to say thank you very much to our $15 patrons. So that's Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, John Clayson, Tyler Long... Adam Kilmartin, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Reminder that our summer commissions window is now open. We will be doing four movies. One of them has already been chosen. It's What We Do in the Shadows. That leaves three left. So get your requests in as soon as possible if you want to secure one of those. I've heard people talking about Arrival and The Last Unicorn, but no one's pushed the button on those yet. So get in touch if those are shows you would like to see become a reality. Standard fees apply, $150. And you can go in on them. And on Patreon this week, if you're at the $5 level or above, there is 30 extra minutes of us waffling about Dark Phoenix. We went way off tangent. 
There's a big chunk about the production of the movie which is less rocky than you might imagine, and more of Sharon getting really crabby about Ty Sheridan. Some chat about a truly terrible cinema audience, and a vague attempt to codify the timeline of the X-Men universe. Here's a clip. In June 2017, the Shi'ar alien race was rumoured to be featured in the film. They weren't. And Angelina Jolie was being looked at for a role, although it, she was not expected to accept the part. Jessica Chastain was going through Angelina's trash and going, ah, more scripts for Jessica. Was also potentially being looked at for the same cat. No, Jessica Chastain is a lady. She's wonderful. And as a special bonus for this cutting class episode on Dark Phoenix, I'm going to record a little end section where I talk you through five X-Men stories that are better than Dark Phoenix. Because everyone always points to this and goes, well, this is obviously the best X-Men story. It's not. Allow me to furnish you with better reading materials. I think one of the reasons that I find this series so frustrating is not just the fact that it's the X-Men and they're my babies. Because ultimately, they, like you said, they can't wreck what I remember, what they are to me. They can't take that away. It's the fact that it's false starts and almost goods and bits of greats and some proper shining stars. But then there's so much dead weight dragging it all down. Mm. I mean, at least the DCEU was kind of consistently bad and is now on its way up to being consistently good. It hurried up. It went Man of Steel, oh, and then three years went by, and then in quick succession, Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad, and then just one more year, Mm. and we had Wonder Woman. Yeah. They got fantastic much quicker. Mm. Yeah. So, anyway... Brighter future lies ahead. Uh, We are happy to close the door on this thing. And we'll be back for New Mutants. (laughs) Fuck! (laughs) So I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's School's out! The sheer amount of male control in this second go at a story famously about a woman. You know, when the first go-round was directed by a man who's been implicated heavily in the Me Too movement... They managed to get rid of Brett Ratner. They managed to get rid of Brian Singer. They kind of lowered their predator rating, yet still all these key production figures are male. Remind me of something uh, We Hate Movies said in their Sucker Punch mentary. Made by a dude, written by a dude, imagined by a dude, directed by a dude, custom designed by another dude, (laughs) music made by a donkey. (laughs) And if you think about it, the fact that this was set in 1992... It was all about a troubled, powerful, flaming-haired young woman and didn't feature any music by Tori Amos. It was pretty much doomed from the start. So we're going to play you out with a song from Little Earthquakes, her 1992 album called Precious Things. And this is a piece that would go with a far, far better movie. Listen to the lyrics on this one. You know what I'm thinking they should have given Dark Phoenix to Sofia Coppola? But he caught me here Yes, my loyalties turned Like my anchor In seventh grade Running after Billy 